of the K-Cut, a podcast where we talk cinema. My name is James. I'm a content creator and stay-at-home husband. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast, and I'm also a contributor to Films Fatale. I'm Rachel. I also write for Films Fatale. I like international cinema, classic Hollywood, and lost movies, and I am obsessed with the Oscars. Who else is here? Andreas here. I am the creator and one of the main writers for Films Fatale. I love art house, but I love a little bit of everything as well, uh, especially international cinema. But I guess a guilty pleasure is all that Oscar goodness as well, which I guess, uh, Rachel, you bring that up because it's it's almost that time. It's almost Oscar season. It's come yeah, earlier it than like usual. It just happened, maybe because it did. Yeah, because uh, it was postponed, but now it's going back to its original time, kind of time slot. So we didn't have to wait a whole entire year. Uh, to find out the aftermath of uh, Joaquin Phoenix being left on the spot like that with uh, <laughs> the final, final category. So, yeah. uh, what if it opens and he's still there? <laughs> just, just Joaquin Phoenix. Like, oh, I've got to, I've got to start this thing too. Oh man, imagine <laughs> I've seen my kids since last March. <laughs> Rudy, I miss you. <laughs> anyway. Uh, that's actually a fantastic segue because that sounds like, uh, the worst nightmare that guy could have just him hosting the Oscars at all. Cause I know he's not very into the awards thing, despite having won best actor, but that would be his nightmare. And this was, uh, the topic for this week is something that I came up with. It's, uh, we're going to pick two different films. So in the first half, we're going to look at films that we would consider our own personal nightmares. And in the second half, we're going to go look at the films that are our own personal dreams, like something that we can get lost in. Now, I want to preface this by saying this doesn't necessarily have to be a surreal film. So, you know, for instance, you can consider uh, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Louis Buñuel to be a nightmare uh, because it literally is a nightmare where these aristocrats just cannot have their dinner for the entire film. Like something keeps stopping them. But that's actually a surreal film. You could also look at something like uh, Sideways by Alexander Payne and consider that a nightmare. If you're in love with wine tasting and you're like, being right next to Paul Giamatti in that film is my worst nightmare. That can count as well. There's nothing surreal about that, unfortunately. So who wants to go first? Let's go with our nightmares first. Get the bat out of the way. All right, I'll go first. Yeah, what is your... uh, your token nightmare in cinematic form. Okay, my nightmare kind of doesn't count because it's already something we're sort of heading towards, and that is Children of Men. Ooh, oh God, we're starting off on a on a very somber note there. Oh God. That's right. So, I mean, we don't have the world fertility crisis yet, but we do have this slow decline into authoritarianism, into it, destruction of infrastructure, and it's just getting worse, and the world is getting sadder and sadder. So. Personally, I think being trapped in that plus the end of humanity would be an absolute nightmare. I've always liked movies that have a realistic look at the end of the world. So stuff like On the Beach, uh, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, that kind of thing. We've talked about it before on this podcast. But Children of Men feels so realistic that I think it would be an attainable nightmare, which is in some ways scarier than the ones with monsters. Yeah, Children of Men is a great example because I feel like, oh God, it's not even that old, but if, I feel like when it first came out in the mid 2000s to now, we've already seen the world evolve enough where it felt like this, this fictional piece 
at first. And now it's like, I identify a little too heavily with a lot of this stuff, with a lot of the film. Well, it's supposed to take place in about 2027, which is five years from now, a little bit more than that. So. Oh, ugh. <laughs> and it's not like uh, Back to the Future, you know, the second one when that year was coming around and like obviously nothing was lining up like the the self-lacing shoes or whatever they were, um, Jaws 20 or whatever it was. Uh, this is a little different. We're seeing the world kind of rip itself apart. Uh, the climate's not looking too good. We've just had a pandemic. So I don't want to say something like this, but who knows what the after effects are? Maybe it's infertility. You never know. So like this is looking a little too realistic. Well... Google male fertility in the news and see where we might be heading on that. But that's another podcast episode. So let's maybe move on to the next movie. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Uh, children of Men. Uh, uh, okay, <laughs> that's, uh, that's a fantastic one. James, please tell me yours is a little less obtainable. So I decided to go with the 1983 David Cronenberg classic Videodrome. Ooh. That that's a good one as well. Uh, why did you go with that one? And what specifically makes it your worst nightmare? I wouldn't say it's my worst nightmare, but so for those who don't know anything about the movie, it stars James Woods and he's CEO of a small television station and he's trying to look for something new to get attract new viewers. And he stumbles upon a broadcast of a show called Videodrome. And it's a show where these masked and hooded individuals torture people and he ends up seeing he he wants to figure out who's behind the show while at the same time his girlfriend becomes infatuated with the show eventually ends up on the show and then just disappears so now he's trying to figure out what happened and then there's this whole thing where it leads to almost like a like there's a cult behind it and there's things to do with mind control and it just kind of makes you think of i don't know maybe just the past 20 years of internet culture and I mean, remember the early 2000s when it's like you had all those shock videos going around mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. like or, or just anything you see now with the media. It's like everything has an angle and there's things it's like, you know, should we be seeing this? Should we not be seeing it? And, you know, the main character just kind of falls deeper into this rabbit hole. and It, it just kind of almost foreshadowed what it was like, what it's like now being on the Internet and just media in general. This episode's getting depressing. <laughs> hey, we did well, say it was a nightmare episode. <laughs> well, we're going to be getting into the good stuff soon. Uh, we're, you know, we're getting the negative stuff out of the way first. Um, do we have anything else to say about about Videodrome? <laughs> I don't know. It's 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 Cronenberg, so of course it's got the body horror angle, and it's there's some pretty really unsettling scenes. I'll just put it at that. I definitely recommend it though. It's it's definitely a great film. Like he's. David Cronenberg is a very unique director. Absolutely. Especially because this was also a uh, an original screenplay, which a lot of the stuff he does is typically adaptations. But this is when I actually came up with himself, which is like, man, <laughs> what what a what an imagination he has. Yeah. I mean, he's uh, arguably the greatest uh, body horror filmmaker of all time. And um, it's interesting. It's interesting that you bring up specifically Videodrome because, you know, you brought up the whole shock video angle which was really big in the the late 90s early 2000s so to kind of see what he was uh what he was predicting come to life before our very eyes is also very interesting and knowing 
from a from a different angle, like getting caught up in all of that stuff is like is is also yeah, it's fascinating. For mine, there's one film that forever kind of just like stays in my head. And I've only ever seen it once. I've only ever seen it once because it's, I believe, over 15 hours. Um, I didn't see it all in I didn't see it all in one sitting, but it's the uh it's the miniseries Berlin Alexander Platz by Rena Werner Fessbinder. And overall, it's a pretty nightmarish experience. It kind of reminds me of uh Satan Tango, like that other really long movie, the seven and a half hour long, because that one you're supposed to feel like you're in this existential limbo. And Bowen Alexander Platz kind of feels the same way for the most part. You're seeing evil people kind of paying for their sins, but they're cycling through the same sins again and again, either by repeating their actions or by reliving these horrors in their mind. But that alone isn't fantastic. And as somebody with anxiety and uh, depression, and I'm sure like a lot of people similar um, with uh, sim- similar conditions, uh, you know, you, you kind of relive stuff that you've done even though you've changed as a person, like you can't really forgive yourself. And that's what this film is. But then it goes the extra mile with one of the most nightmarish things I've ever seen. And that is the epilogue where, in my opinion, you're literally in a cinematic hell. And I've never seen hell, like the the setting, quite depicted as accurately and as frightfully as it is in this film. And... For, I think the epilogue is the longest part. I think it's like two hours or so. For those two hours, it's like everything beforehand, this is what you have feared. You not being able to forgive yourself and not being able to crack out of what makes you a bad person. This is what it's like and this is what's coming for you. Let me tell you, I've only ever seen this film once and it's it's a masterful film. But... To this day, it haunts me, and I can't get it out of my head. I can't get those images and things out of my head. So that's what I'm going with. All right, then. I got to check that out. If you've got uh, 15 hours to spare, <laughs> I, I don't recommend doing it in one sitting. It's it's really tough. Challenge accepted. <laughs> exactly. What I do recommend, though, is uh, moving on to the next subject, because uh, things are depressing enough, and I feel like... Uh, yeah, just 10 minutes of depressing stuff is all that we need in 2021. Why don't we elaborate on some of the fun stuff, some of the happy things? These are the films that we can wallow in because these are our dream films. So uh, if possible, let's go in the same order. Rachel, what is the film that makes you feel like you're walking on a cloud and you're really in your your happy place? Okay, mine is more of a genre than a film, but it is screwball comedies of the 1930s and early 40s. First off, brilliant choice. Mm-hmm. Second off, did you have a second? Well, I was just going to ask, I guess, after you brought up why, uh, if you had a a certain film in particular. Yes, well, to represent the entire genre, I'm going to pick My Man Godfrey, basically because I've talked about Catherine Hepburn way too much on this podcast already. But it is an amazing genre where everybody is glamorous and witty, and their love interests are equally glamorous and witty. You get into all kinds of zany situations. There's probably a large animal involved somewhere, a crazy wedding, and it all just... The best screwball comedies are tight and perfect and clever, and I want to be that kind of clever, glamorous, witty person. And that's basically it. And hanging out with people like Carol Lombard and William Powell and Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant sounds amazing. Screwball comedies are are just brilliant. And I know that we've had a couple of homages to screwball comedies in the last X amount of years, like Burn After Reading is something that comes to mind. Not the same. 
yeah, like, yeah, it's not the same. The, the iconic classic ones really are something like they're, they're this, I love them as well. I don't know what it is. If it's the, uh, the fast transatlantic dialogue that you just get lost in and you forget about whatever problems you have because you're trying to cling onto every word and you get, you kind of ram into like these hilarious innuendos or punchlines or people tripping over their own words. Just to, just that alone is fantastic. But like you said, they always picked up the most charming, dynamic people to kind of play these uh, dialogue juggling acts. And who better? Yeah, and they had dynamic teams behind it. They had people like Howard Hawks, George Cukor, that kind of thing. Another thing is they were often quite progressive for their era, but in a way you don't really notice. So, for example... They had comedies of remarriage where the characters were divorced and they had to get together by the end, but it showed them living their best divorce life. They played around with gender politics. Generally, the female characters were just as strong and interesting and compelling as the male characters. They would go very far with innuendo, which they really couldn't do except for in this veiled comic way. It was a really cool time in film history. Absolutely. But I do have to ask because I do like uh, highlighting specific films. And I only just watched this one for the first time last year, so it's still very fresh in my head just how funny this film is. Please dive into, and I know it's not like perhaps the one, but if you you know picked one for the entire genre, my man Godfrey, why is this a dream picture? It's just every single bit of that genre on tip, like tip-top perfection. You've got Carol Lombard and William Powell at the top of their strength. You've got... Um, you know, who was it? Was it Weiler who directed? I think it was absolutely perfectly put together. The script was sizzling. The chemistry was there. The production design was glamorous and gorgeous. It just did everything right. And it put it in one perfect cohesive package. It was fabulous. I Some of the others I'd recommend any viewers out there, I'd say it happened one night, the awful truth, libel lady, um, bringing up baby. And then by the time we get to the Philadelphia story, the genre was kind of dying. So I would end it off there. Yeah, uh, it was uh, Gregory Lacava who did uh, My Man Godfrey. But uh, Lacava, of course. Yes, uh, also brilliant. But shout out to Weiler because why not? Um, but uh, what was that middle one, Lacava or something? You were oh no, sorry. What was that middle? Um, Libel Lady, The Awful Truth. Oh no, I've seen The Awful Truth. It's it's Libel Lady. Yeah, that's got Spencer Tracy, Gene Harlow, William Powell, and Myrna Loy as couples who are all in love with each other the wrong way, and there's a scandal or something, and it's great. I've seen every other film you brought up except for Live with Lady. I'm going to have to check that out. Go watch it. I am so stoked for that because, again, I love all the other ones that you brought up. But we're going to have to hop onto the next cloud uh, from cloud nine to cloud something rather because 10 and 8 don't really work uh cloud nif the french one i don't know uh james what about you what is your your dream film that you could just sit within and never leave so i had a hard time with this one because i don't watch most of the stuff i watch isn't like fun like that Mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily have to be fun it could look cool okay i'm actually gonna go with Terrence Malick's Knight of Cups. Okay, okay. Uh, I think I see where you're going with this. It's still a very, uh, uh, it's still a story that's rooted in reality, but I think I see where you're going with this. Uh, perhaps the aesthetic angle. Why Knight of Cups? I enjoyed it because, so 
the film stars Christian Bale as this kind of jaded screenwriter who's kind of like trapped in the system. And it's composed of vignettes of various people within his life and who he comes across in his life. And it's almost like he lives in a dream existence, which is exemplified by the cinematography of Emmanuel Lebesky. Mm-hmm. So just see this because, you know, with the thing with post tree of life, it's camera work sort of just cascades through in and out of the scenery constantly. And you never get any direct look at anyone's faces. Even their presence seems to be obscured. It's a film that literally operates like a dream because with how his, his films are put together, there's no singular focus. Like in a dream, there's so much going on. You can't really pinpoint a dream. And it's one of those films when you walk out of it, it's almost like you can't recall it like much like a dream because so much happens. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think it's just the ethereal nature of the format of the story. Cause each vignette is also named after a card in a tarot card deck. The tarot card. Yeah. So that also plays along with the theme. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm a really big fan of Malik, regardless of how his films are like end result, because like all his films aren't perfect. His filmography isn't like always the most amazing, but I think he has mastered aesthetic. And I think that's what keeps me attached to his films because you can just sort of coast in just almost like you're an observer in the film as opposed to just viewing from the outside. It's interesting you say that because I can admit that uh Malik's filmography isn't perfect, but maybe I'm just a sucker for his style. I don't dislike a single film of his and even what's considerably his worst, like to the wonder night of cups song to song. I really get lost in them and I really love them. Especially the voiceovers too. Yeah, exactly. I've done uh, concert photography. So song to song reminded me of back when I used to go to way home festival and NX and E and stuff like that. He's a filmmaker. I thought of for this question quite a bit, but I ultimately didn't pick one of his. It's weird because I wouldn't really call his style surreal, but there's something, and maybe it's his religious spiritual angle that takes things from our lives and enhances them and really reminds us the world's a beautiful place in a new world. Or when you get transported back in time for something like Days of Heaven or again, like Night of Cups, it's still in the present and it's not necessarily like a like a fun spot to be in you know you're discussing life and death and hardship and breakups but everything is shot as if your life or life itself is the finest work of art he's almost like directly adjacent to reality like he's not quite grounded but he's not in the clouds completely that's that's a great way to put it yeah that's about all i have to say about my pick Alrighty, uh, I hate to end this pod, or at least this section, on such a predictable note, but I can't think of anything else that really fits like this. I could think of a lot of films that bring me joy, but there's one, and maybe it's like the nostalgia factor. I'm not going to beat around the bush anymore. It's Chunking Express. It's uh, Wonk or Why. Oh, yeah. I almost went with that. <laughs> What again, it's such an obvious pick. When I think of a world I would love to just sit in, and I'm not talking about the crime elements of um of Chuck King Express or anything like that, or like the heartbreak. I'm talking about, you know, being a nineties kid, born in eighty-nine, but I grew up my entire childhood was in the nineties, those colors, just imagining myself as if my frame rate of life is dropping and I just have like this this retro blur about it and everything is just 
pinks and greens and and such highlighter colors and this is this is life all sounds of reverb on them like everything is in this daydream haze and i absolutely love it so um i guess a second answer i can supply for the first part of this this podcast a nightmare episode the great antithesis for listeners at home is the sister film Fallen Angels, also by Wonkar Wai. It's basically a remainder story that was supposed to be a part of the, uh, to, to make a, a trilogy within one film, but instead Chunking expresses two stories and this was left off. So instead of everything being in broad daylight and happy colors, uh, Fallen Angels is a lot more grim, a lot darker. I'm pretty sure the majority of the film actually takes place at night. Um, it's a uh, it's one worth checking out if you haven't seen it. But yeah, uh, the more obvious pick, Chunking Express. That's a good one. That is a good one. I, I'm like I said, I almost picked that myself, but I was like, mm, I don't know if that'd be too obvious. I also didn't know if you were going to pick it. So <laughs> it, it is too obvious, and that's that's half the problem. But if you haven't, Fallen Angels is there to, to check out. It was considered a very underrated film, but a lot of people are talking about Fallen Angels now. So I'm happy to report that it's heading towards being recognized so at least there's that but it's no chucking express that's like arguably the best thing walker y ever did outside of in the mood for love so amazing what we're gonna do now in this nice short bite-sized episode is bring things back to reality uh we're no longer having nightmares but we're no longer having pleasant dreams either we're going to give you our weekly recommendations, but to wake you up before we get into these these uh, quick picks, we're going to remind you of where we are on social media. Right. So we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the K-Cut. We're vamping up with some new posts hopefully soon. And for our cinematic smorgasbord this month, we are going to be watching Coherence, the one that I've been assigned that I can't remember, The Double Life of Veronique. And some like it hot. And then our collective pick is going to be Disco Dancer. I watched it last night and it is fun. Amazing. Uh, I'm going to have to check that out. And uh, not in a typical sense. I, I really, really have to check that out before next week. Yeah, you Otherwise, literally have to do it. <laughs> I have to. It's my homework. Um, might as well go in the same order. Uh, Rachel, what is your weekly recommendation? All right. I'm going with one that probably most of you have seen. But this week... The TV series The Great is coming out. It's a highly fictionalized version of the life of Catherine the Great. And its star, Nicholas Holt, does a tremendous job. But I'm going to take you back to the movie most of us know him from, About a Boy, when he was a little kid and he was adorable and nerdy. And Hugh Grant became his sort of extra dad. It is the loveliest movie. And I, for me, it is one of Hugh Grant's best performances and definitely his best rom-com. I was uh, very anti-Hugh Grant for a while until I discovered his early 80s work and his most recent stuff. But uh, luckily, my girlfriend introduced me to this film, and it's arguably the best of like the typical Hugh Grant era. It is it is a really, really good film. I do like About a Boy a lot. Fantastic pick. Uh, James, what about you? So I'm going to go with, because I'm trying to catch up with like filmographies that I've been meaning to, and I've been... Uh, trying to watch the Coen Brothers movie. So I'm going to go with Raising Arizona. Yes. And I have to say, Blood Simple was a great debut, but Raising Arizona definitely solidified their idiosyncratic style right down to the, you know, kind of rural, quirky characters or main characters. And then the whole kind of side thing with that bounty hunter just adds 
I can see why they would do that in most of their films where they have this kind of character that's just sort of kind of adjacent to everyone's existence, but is has some sort of really weird connection to the plot. Yeah, I don't know. It's I understand why their careers took off the way they did, but I also understand it's just another thing that points to Nicolas Cage being one of the greatest actors of all time, regardless of however you feel about him. Interesting. So um, this this is completely accidental. Uh, You know, you're talking about Nicholas Holt, Rachel. Uh, You're talking about Nicholas Cage. Um, I guess for the trifecta, not an actor, but I'm going to go with a Nicholas Bertel related something or other, I guess, because I've got succession just on my mind all the time. I'm going with If Beale Street Could Talk um, by Barry Jenkins, which I think is a very underrated follow up to Moonlight. That film is so good. Yeah, Beale Street Could Talk is just uh, very moving. Um, it's a lot more literary than Moonlight is, obviously because it's based on the James Baldwin source. And it's it's some powerful stuff. And kudos to Regina King for her much-deserved Oscar. I feel like the film deserved a hell of a lot more than it won for. It's just a beautiful film, but a very sad one as well. So there you go, three Nicholas-related works. And... Uh, thank you for listening to the K Cut, and please tune in to our next episode. And we are now going into the L Cut. <laughs> <laughs>